Well, he is such a good, good father to us, is he not? And thank you for your 90 for 90 gift today as we honor the Lord and thank him for all that he's done for us. If you forgot to be part of that today, uh, you can bring that back next week and be part of that so we can get this project completed and to his honor and glory and, uh, and celebrate, continue to celebrate the great things and the great faithfulness of God to us. If you haven't been able to get a study book for our new series, they're on order and they'll be in, but you can get some photocopies for now if you're going to purchase one from the office so you can drop by there. We're starting a new series uh, today and throughout the next uh, 12 weeks, Lord willing, in the Minor Prophets. God has something to say to you. And uh, we, we want to look at each of the uh, prophets throughout uh, these weeks and uh, we'll be biting off more than we can chew every week, but we'll do that anyway because that's what we're going to do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. It's incredible. We know you are gracious and long-suffering and patient. Oh God, thank you for your patience. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your welcome arms that are open to us, oh God. You have something to say to us. And we want to be people who are listening, oh God. We want to have ears that hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us. We want to change, oh God. We're asking you to show us where we are falling short and, oh God, by your strength, enable us to, to live a life that pleases you in every way. You are truly worthy of our praise and our worship. We want to live lives of worship, living sacrifices, oh God. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen. Well, last September, I flew down to Corpus Christi Texas to uh, pick up my daughter and uh, get her car and drive her back home here. It was at the end of, near the end of September, and if any of you remember what was going on that time of the year, it was Hurricane Harvey had just blown through South Texas. And as we were driving back through the small town after small town, I couldn't, I, I couldn't in, uh, imagine uh, how... Uh, distressed the landscape was. I never, had never been an eyewitness to a hurricane before, and uh, it had blown through, of course, and, and we were going from, from town to town, and we just saw the, the, the houses surgically cut in half, uh, smashed to pieces, motel, giant motels, the roofs all caved in. As you went from small town to small town through the, the rural uh, country fields, they were littered with personal belongings and people's things all over the fields, likely never to be returned to their owners. I couldn't help but think as I saw those small towns that were barely hanging on that this was perhaps just the last final completion of putting them out of business. I couldn't imagine how, how they would have the, the, the wherewithal to reproduce the infrastructure and, and build again. We have, blowing through our land, a moral revolution. And the litter of immorality is strewn all over the landscape. The book of Hosea takes us very much into that kind of a setting, where God speaks out boldly about the situation and the circumstances that are prevalent in the culture that is there. The thing is, though, when we read some of these, 
particular prophecies, we're always looking around at someone else and deflecting what God has to say to someone else. We're saying how bad it is over there, how bad my neighbors are, and how bad the co-workers are and all of this. But the book of Hosea is not written to pagans. The prophecy is recorded to the people of God. The landscape that was littered with immorality and defection and unfaithfulness to God wasn't so much about the culture around them as it was about them. If there's going to be any sort of return to faithfulness to God, it must start household by household, family by family, person by person who belong to God's family. You see, the reality of our culture and the state that our culture is in is fundamentally a snapshot of the defection of the church of Jesus Christ. You see, we are the pace setters of how the culture responds to God. It has been that way since the beginning. Culture becomes less and less uh, committed to God as the church or the people of God stray from God. It is up to us to reignite our hearts of passion for God if we're ever to hope to see something change in the culture around us. It is no good to hope that our help will come from Ottawa. Our hope won't come from Ottawa. The hope of the world is the church of Jesus Christ. As Christ himself strengthens us and convinces us that faithfulness to him is non-negotiable, the culture itself will begin to turn. We have an opportunity in this generation to turn things around. And the minor prophets, which are not minor messages, major messages from small pieces of the Bible can help us to turn this culture around. Will you join me as we turn in the book of Hosea? If you don't know where it is, go to the book of Matthew and count back 12 books. (laughs) You will find Hosea. God has something to say to you today about loyalty from the book of Isaiah, Hosea. In Hosea 10, 13, we're going to look at four major sections because it's impossible to cover 14 chapters in depth unless you're planning to be here until tomorrow. But we will look at four particular highlights that I want to point out so you get a good feel for what's going on and, and what, who our God is. The times, by the way, were very good. Uh, this was not a depressed time. In fact, the economy is great. People were high-fiving each other, high-fiving each other. It was wonderful. The economy is great. God's people were successful and happy, and, and all things were going great. Uh, Jeroboam II, who was the king at the time of the northern tribes of Israel, where Hosea was, was residing and prophesying, he had extended and, and marked out the, the prop, recovered the boundaries of Israel. And so things were going very well. but not with God. And this prophecy is a prophecy about the wounded heart of our God. In this book, as it begins, God asks Hosea the prophet to do the unthinkable. He asks him to marry a woman who will be promiscuous, who will actually prostitute herself. He's asked to marry this woman who will bear children to him that if a paternity test were done would not prove to be his children. Why would God ask him to do that? 
I mean, everywhere we read the scriptures and what we've taught each other and all of that is make sure you're careful who you marry. Make sure you marry someone who really loves the Lord. Make sure you have every advantage of uh, spiritual advantage in your marriage. But this prophet is asked to do something that is completely unusual. Marry this woman by the name of Gomer who will not be faithful to you. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, Hosea 1-2, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu. For the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Now Jezreel translated can be scatter or plant. In this case, his first kid's name is Scatter. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Rahamah. For I will no longer show love to the house of Israel. Lo Rahamah means not pitied or not loved. Your daughter will be called not loved. I no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should, all, all, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah and I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle or by horses and horsemen but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo Rahamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Lo-Ami means not my people. Your third child will be called not my people. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be in reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel save your brothers my people and of your sisters my loved one this is the word of God let's leave it there for a second Hosea was asked to illustrate the heart of God he would walk out of his house on a given night And his neighbors would say to him, what, is Gomer not home again? No, she's not home. You have to bear the shame and reproach of going from street to street, house to house, searching for his unfaithful wife. To hear his neighbors snicker in the background, none of those kids are his. And their names scatter. Not my people. Not loved. Can you imagine saying to your wife, hey, go, could you go get scatter? Go get not loved. Bring her in now and finish playing. The shame he had to bear. Oh, yeah, Gomer's down at the bar again looking for someone else. You know, as I, I was an eyewitness of... Uh, at Hurricane Harvey in South Texas. And as a spectator, I'd drive by those houses and look at them, wonder what happened, and think about the family 
And so I can bring you a report, a little bit of a report, but nothing I can say can bring any real emotion to your heart because I don't know those people. I, I don't know what's going on. But what if one of the men whose house was surgically cut in two by the wind was standing here on the platform telling you about the night he spent with the winds howling and his family gathered and wondering if they were going to see the light of day, if they would still be alive at the end of it all. Then as he poured out his heart to you, you'd feel the emotion of that man and his, his, his tragedy and all that went on. And so God asks Hosea, you live out the reality of my emotion. I want you to bring a message to my people from a heart that really understands what it's like to be a jilted lover. We think of our God in heaven who has everything and has no needs, doesn't care about our sins, doesn't care about our unfaithfulness. He wants to tell you, I, I care about it. I'm deeply injured and hurt and jilted. I'm a wounded God because you turn to other gods. And so Hosea the prophet prophesied from the depth of emotion about a God who loves, about a God who forgives, about a God who continues to pursue. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. And afterward the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Hosea, go and live out the reality of my heart. In Hosea 10.13, we are told there that our problem is quite simple, but quite desperate. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your own strength. When things get good, our health clears up, children are fine, the bank account is full. Satan starts to whisper in our ear, look what you've done. Look how talented you are. Look how skillful you are. Look how hard you've worked. You really don't need God. You can pull this off on your own. And for whatever reason, through the history of the ages, God's people have believed that lie. The fruit of that deception is to depend upon our own strength. And God is here to say something to us today who depend on our own strength. You've made a mess of things. You may think you're living high on the hog, but you've made a super, super 
mess of your life and the lives of those around you. You see, this problem that happened in Hosea's time didn't start immediately. It has a history. Sin always does. It doesn't fall upon us immediately or fast. It develops. And it regularly develops through the generations. I'm so grateful to to those people who five generations ago were faithful to God's word. Our grandparents, our grandparents who passed down faithful living. But the corollary is also a reality whereby unfaithfulness in generations of the past builds momentum into the next generations. You see, the problem here is that the decisions that were made eons before were determining what was going on here. In Hosea 4.14, God says this, I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution. Why? Because their fathers themselves consort with harlots. Decisions we make determine the spiritual temperature of our great-grandchildren. We think that our lives are individual and mean very little. I'm not important. I, I don't really matter that much. No, the ripple effects of our lives will always affect the generations that come after us. Always. For good or for bad. In fact, Hosea gives a history lesson to the people here. He takes them on a tour drive-by ground zero tour with Hosea as the host. He talks about the, the fact that um, Jeroboam II was king. Now, to them, they would know something about that. They would know what that meant. You see, Jeroboam II being the king of Israel, and God mentioning here that he's had it with Israel, but he's okay with Judah, maybe makes us wonder what's going on, but it didn't make them wonder what was going on. You see, the kingdom had split 200 years before. King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was a ruthless leader, oppressed the people, and the people didn't want to follow him. He he continued to put pressure upon them, and so this man rose up by the name of Jeroboam, and Jeroboam found a sympathetic following of people who couldn't stand the oppression of Rehoboam, and And so the kingdom of Israel split in two. Ten tribes followed Jeroboam, the great-great-grandfather of this Jeroboam II in this text. Followed Jeroboam. The rest, the other two tribes, stayed with Rehoboam. And so this disunity that occurred 200 years before had set the pace for the unfaithfulness of God 200 years later as they continued to gain momentum of unfaithfulness. It started with their forefathers. Jeroboam I, who took this divided kingdom and took the ten tribes who followed him, he was so jealous for power that he was afraid that they would in their worship, go back to Jerusalem and where they were supposed to worship. And if they went back to Jerusalem, they would start to defect from Jeroboam and would start to follow Rehoboam. And so he decided 
to set up altars in Bethel and Dan of golden calves for fear that the people would leave and defect. So selfish was he for power that he disregarded God's ways. Beloved, nothing's really changed. This could be the headlines of North American churches. Then he takes them on this tour of gross disloyalty. I'll just pop in and out this really quickly because I want you to know that God never, ever forgets our sins unless we give him cause to. So in Hosea 9.10, the mention of the place called Baal Peor is put before them again. Baal Peor was Numbers 25, the Moabite shame where the people of Israel, the soldiers of Israel, the men of Israel prostituted themselves with Moabite women. Unfaithful to God. And then in verse 15 of chapter 9, he talks about Gilgal. Gilgal was the place where King Saul was coronated, where where the people of God said, we don't want God's sovereignty over us. We want a human king like all the other nations. In Hosea 10, verse 5 and 6, the name Beth-Avon is mentioned. Beth-Avon is another way of saying Bethel. But it's used when they don't want to be reminded of the shame of Bethel. You see, Jacob had his great encounter with the living God, and he named the place Bethel, the house of God. Centuries later, centuries later, at Bethel, King Jeroboam II erected a golden calf that they might worship it. And so it was renamed Beth-Avon, the house of shame or the house of iniquity. It was the house of God and now it's the house of iniquity. He mentions one more geographic location, a place called Gibeah. In Hosea 10, 8 and 9, Gibeah was the recollection of the horrible event in Judges 19 where the men of Israel gang-raped a concubine and she was cut into 12 pieces by her Levite suitor and those pieces were shipped throughout Israel in this darkest moment of Israel's history. And God says, I haven't forgotten about your disloyalty. And then he says to them in Hosea 11, 2 and 7, the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. My people are determined to turn from me. Determined to turn from me. Generations of normalizing wrong. I want to give you a loyalty alert this morning. 
loved ones. Beware of living in a culture that builds lives and families away from the promises of God. That's the culture we live in. We hear a word like the Baals, sacrifice of the Baals. We don't even know really what that is, or most of us wouldn't know what that is. God, Baal, was a Canaanite, Canaanite cultural God, a fertility God. The worship of that God involved sexual orgies to arouse the God to be fertile and the sacrifice of children. I hope you're hearing what's going on here. This is not a discussion about the pagans around them. God is calling out to his people and saying, you are sacrificing to the Baals? And what was so attractive about that deception? Satan played into the desires of mankind to mix business with pleasure. To give them the idea that, that economic success could be had by these gross and horrible activities. Well, this becomes such a distant thing to us. It sounds so bizarre and so unusual that how do I apply this to my life? It's first and foremost a departure from the Word of God, a departure from what He has taught. But we have to start to dig into this and, and ask the questions, how, how, can we, how can we look at our landscape and, 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 and pay attention to the dangers of living in our own culture that's, that's seeking to build lives and families away from the promises of God? Because that's what's going on all around us. I mean, what is the real Canadian religion? There was a time when whether or not hearts were fully engaged in a salvation relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a, a sensitivity in our culture of Canada toward the Word of God, toward a respect for God. And, and there was a time, but now what we have seen happen over the years is we've moved from listening to God's Word and God's law to not listening any longer to laws that we made that were predicated or based on God's laws, to now listening to random emotions and random thinking, individual thoughts based on what might feel good right now with no thought whatsoever to its implications to a whole culture. Wouldn't it be good to just get a good tax grab out of marijuana and not give any thought whatsoever to what that will do to the culture? Our Canadian religion is to have rejected the voice of God, to now reject the laws that were predicated on the voice of God, to now just whatever someone wants to say in the moment will be the way it is. 
and our Baal worship. In the areas of appropriate conduct and economic security and business and social ethics and value of life, we've modernized Baal worship. What do I mean? We talk now about, um, there's a lot of language out there about safe spaces, and we've seen all of the, all the problems with immorality in our culture and where it's led us and where we're at. A friend of mine wrote an interesting essay this past week in terms of appropriate conduct and God's Word. We are fooling ourselves if we think that a male and a female can be together who are not married, alone, and it be a safe space. It's never a safe space. It will always be an unsafe space. That's why the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. That's why it says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of youth. God's wisdom is being ignored. Like we can somehow, by our own strength, because we have eaten the fruit of deception, believe that we can create safe spaces and break all the rules. Parents, young people, give your heads a shake. You can't put a guy and a girl together in a, in a, in a space by themselves, unmarried, and call it a safe space. In the Reality of economic security? The watchword, the buzzword of our culture is accumulation. The way to be economically secure is to accumulate. Yes? Rather than God's work and being content, we accumulate. It trains us to become people who are entitlement-driven because we, our whole social construct changes. We start believing that if you work more, you will make more, and you will deserve more. And that process changes us from being people of grace who are thankful to the living God, knowing full well we don't deserve anything we have, to believe that we deserve exactly what we have. I worked hard, I made more, I deserve more. And gradually our compassion, any, if we had any vestige of compassion in our hearts, it disappears because we become convinced that those who don't have, it's because they didn't work and therefore they didn't deserve. That's not the heart of God. I'm not proposing here now that we should become socialists. I'm saying here that we are seeing the culture around us change us into accumulation-driven people who become entitlement-driven people as opposed to gracious people. In terms of business and social ethics, in our business ethics, we believe that the ends justify the means because after all, good guys finish last, right? Not in God's economy. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. In the areas of social ethics and dangerous behavior, we need to understand in terms of behavior, 
that we live in a culture and a generation that, that believes that, that their behavior should not be used against them when things go bad, but should be used to make other people accountable for what happened to them. Listen, getting drunk, getting stoned on marijuana, gambling, are always going to be dangerous behavior, always. And when you mix dangerous behavior with unsafe spaces, you have Canada. And unless the church comes alive and lives differently, we will not express the heart of God to our culture. Justin Trudeau is not going to fix this. Jesus Christ alone can fix this as it starts in the church and moves its way through. And then the value of life, the call to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus is entirely different than the self-absorbed culture that we're raising our children in. The inconvenience of that self-absorption in 1930, the Church of England finally conceded to contraception among church people. Now, I don't want you to read anything too much into what I'm telling you here. I just want you to think and reflect upon where we are now and where we once were not that long ago. The simple truth is when you make pregnancy avoidable, and marriage disposable, you make self-love and self-worship preferable. If you want to understand why marriages are tanking at record numbers and why children are being aborted at record numbers, it's because the church decided that marriage and children weren't important. And what Hosea states, or maybe God through Hosea, in 4.12, is that a spirit of prostitution has come upon his people. They consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They're unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and tabernth, terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. The spirit of prostitution leads them astray. Cultural Christianity is the spirit of prostitution. And you know how it really can be described? It's when God's people want to be in the world, but a whole bunch of the world as well. We are told by the Word of God we are to be in the world, but not of the world. But when God's people are in the world, but want to be also of the world a lot of the time, it becomes a spirit of prostitution. As Tony Evans correctly identified it in America, his book, America, uh, turning, uh, turning a Nation Back to God, 
the problem is too many of us have a God and mentality instead of a God only mentality. Life is not going to be happy enough or pleasurable enough or economically successful enough unless it's God and instead of God only. And so we dabble with God because we don't really know Him. That's what he says in Hosea 4.1. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. What's the issue? We, we don't know God. 85% of this next generation has no inkling of who God is. The 18 to 38-year-olds, they don't even know who he is. And that other 15% are on the edge. Our 18 to 38-year-olds. You have to be careful to preserve your loyalty and faithfulness to God because there is a desensitization of the frequency with which you engage in the world. In the world too far and too much. Our, our video games, our media are glorifying violence. The more you see, the less sensitive you become. The Trojan horse of TV has completely deprogrammed our hearts and our minds. Approvingly, we are normalizing witchcraft and the occult and the culture of death and homosexuality. As USA Today in 2013 correctly stated, Hollywood is the best man of gay marriage. And so we dabble in the world. We, put, we, want, we only want light teaching and we, and we neglect teaching that leads to our defection. Gradually, we can't even tell the difference between God and Baal. They went and consulted a wooden idol, if you're still in chapter 4, answered and, the, and are answered by a stick of wood. Hello, a little stick of wood. Hello, this is what you should do. I mean, seriously, a wood stick that they made. And they sacrificed on the mountaintops and burned offerings on the hills, thinking God would be happy with them, playing with two gods. Today's your day. Tomorrow's their day. The same as a prostitute. I want to share something with you that's worth at least the offering that you put on the plate this morning. How is it that we can start to normalize unfaithfulness to God and start to feel okay with it? How does that happen? How does that even happen? It doesn't happen quickly, but how does it happen? When the reason God used the illustration of a marriage is to drive home the most important theme of all the Bible, and that's his covenant love to us. If we want to understand God, you have to understand his love for us. If you want to understand the heart of God's agony with your sin, you have to understand his covenant of love with you. Hosea and Gomer are a marriage illustration on purpose so that we can understand the depth of the heart sickness of what it means to be treated with disloyalty. And all of us can climb inside of that moment. And so God is expressing here his great love for us in a most profoundly emotional way to call out to his people, I love you. 
When Jesus put Peter back up on his feet and dusted him off, what was the first thing he said to him? First question he asked him. What was it? Peter, do you love me? And Peter answered, yeah, of course I love you. Yeah, I love you, of course. No, 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 Peter, Peter, do you love me? Lord, Lord, you know I love you. Come on, let's move on to something more. No, no, Peter, there is nothing more important than this. Do you love me? How is it that a marriage starts to become adulterated? Doesn't love come off the tracks? And, and, and how does an adulterous marriage seek to operate? If it doesn't come completely unglued, it, 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 it seeks to operate on, on uh, going through the motions. A loveless marriage is one whereby the two people just go through the motions. I'll do my job, you do your job, we'll share the rent, we'll keep up appearances, and it'll all be good. And God says, not for me. I'm not going to have that kind of a relationship with you. I'm not going to have you just go through the motions of ritual. Because that's how you know the difference. We've got all kinds of religion in this world. We've got all kinds of Christian religion in this world. We've got all kinds of religious people doing all kinds of rituals, going through the motions. Hey, I came to church. Hey, I put something on the offering plate. Hey, God, you owe me now. No, God says, I don't want that kind of a relationship. I'm not going to have a relationship of ritual with you. I want a relationship of love with you because I love you. And when we go into the ritual mode, we start to go through the motions and just think God is happy with us piecing him off. And then we become convinced we deserve God's help. Because I've kept my end of the bargain like a loveless marriage. Hey, you cook, you look after the kids, I'll go to work, I'll bring home a paycheck, we'll keep it going. And by the way, we owe each other that at least. God won't have it. The story of Hosea, the story of the Bible, is a God in love with you who won't settle for any other gods, any other lovers, any ritual, any going through the motions. No! I give all of myself to you, and I want all of you in return. So, what do we do? At the very end of the book, in Hosea 13 and 14, God says this, verse 4, But I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, you shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. Are you serious? You think that little stick you made can look after you? You think that idol that you have to nail to the floor so it won't fall over with a 
gust of air is going to take care of your family and your children and make the sun shine and the rain fall? You think a sexual orgy and sacrificing your children is going to raise your crops from the ground? Or cause your wife to bear you a child? How dare you? How dare you think that? God is uniquely sovereign, our only Savior, and full of compassion and forgiveness. You know the beauty of God? He lays on the table forgiveness. That's why he told Hosea to go and get Gomer and take her into your heart even though she's a prostitute. Because I am the God who invites all those who've prostituted themselves to other gods to come back to me. We aren't left wondering, I wonder, you know, if I turn this thing around, I wonder if God would ever take me back. No, no, it's not I wonder if God would ever take me back. He lays it up front on the table. I will take you back. Forgiveness is yours for the taking. Come back to me. And so he says there, acknowledge the living God. Return from your dalliances to me. Repent from where you have gone. Turn and go the opposite direction, and I will receive you. I will welcome you back. And by the way, you remember I said to you, God never forgets our sins unless we give them a reason to. When we repent of our sins... He casts them as far as the east is from the west and holds them against us no more. He forgets our sins when we repent. And it all starts over fresh. Do you love me, God is saying. Do you love me? Our Father, I pray this morning... as we have encountered the wounded heart of our Heavenly Father. I pray, O God, that each of us will take seriously our own lives. Are we eating the fruit of deception and thinking that we can do this in our own strength? Are we embracing a spirit of prostitution and the wages of prostitution? Selling out our God for a momentary pleasure here and there? And all the time you are asking us, do you love me? Because I sure love you. Oh Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ who is the apex of your love for us, demonstrated for all eternity. I pray, O oh God, that those of us who are here who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that is available through him might rush to him right now, O oh God, to find forgiveness and mercy and compassion and eternal unfailing love. 
And that those of us who have been dabbling and are now going through the motions of ritual, dragging ourselves in here Sunday and throwing something on the offering plate, I pray, oh God, your invitation to love you might be embraced that we might move back from ritual to relationship really fast for your honor and glory and for our good. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.